Welcome to another edition of Transformation Radio. Our reading in the New Testament comes from the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. We'll read here that although God is all-powerful and all-knowing, He has chosen to let us help Him change the world through our prayers. How this works is a mystery to us because of our limited understanding, but it is a reality. Paul is basing his instruction about prayer for everyone on his conviction that God's invitation for salvation extends equally to all people. The word everyone captures the nature of the gospel. The world that God loves includes every person. He loves us as individuals whom he knows intimately. He created us, each one. Paul urges us to pray for all people. Our earnest prayers will have powerful results. We should pray for those in authority around the world so that their societies will be conducive to the spread of the gospel. Paul's command to pray for kings is remarkable, considering that Nero, a notoriously cruel ruler, was emperor at this time. When Paul wrote this letter, persecution was a growing threat to believers. Well, later, when Nero needed a scapegoat for the great fire that destroyed much of Rome in A.D. 64, he blamed the Roman Christians so as to take the focus off himself. Then persecution erupted throughout the Roman Empire. Not only were Christians denied certain privileges in society, some were even publicly butchered, burned, or fed to animals. Both Peter and Paul said that God wants everyone to be saved. This does not mean that all will be saved, because the Bible makes it clear that many reject Christ. The good news has a universal scope. It's not directed only to people of one race, one sex, or one national background. God loves the whole world and sent His Son to save sinners. No one is outside God's mercy or beyond the reach of His offer of salvation. And with that, let's begin our reading today here in the New Testament. October 17th, the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. I, Paul, urge you, Timothy, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf, and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives, marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. For there is only one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. And I have been chosen as a preacher and apostle to teach the Gentiles this message about faith and truth. I'm not exaggerating just telling the truth. In every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands, lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy. And I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. Women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach men or have authority over men. Let them listen quietly. For God made Adam first, 
and afterward he made Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived, and sin was the result. But women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. And now from the book of Psalms, Psalm 87, verses 1 through 7. Jerusalem, the holy mountain Zion, and its temple here represent the future community of all believers. This psalm looks ahead to the holy city of God described in Revelation. The honor of living there will be granted to all whose names are recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life. It is God's grace that forms and sustains this wonderful community. How could anyone refuse God's offer to be part of this great celebration? Psalm 87, verses 1-7 through 7, A Song A Psalm of the Descendants of Korah On the holy mountain stands the city founded by the Lord. He loves the city of Jerusalem more than any other city in Israel. O city of God, what glorious things are said of you! Interlude I will count Egypt and Babylon among those who know me, also Philistia and Tyre, and even distant Ethiopia. They have all become citizens of Jerusalem. Regarding Jerusalem, it will be said, Everyone enjoys the rights of citizenship there, and the Most High will personally bless this city. When the Lord registers the nations, He will say, They have all become citizens of Jerusalem. Interlude. The people will play flutes and sing, The source of my life springs from Jerusalem. Proverbs chapter 25, verses 18 and 19. Telling lies about others is as harmful as hitting them with an axe, wounding them with a sword, or shooting them with a sharp arrow. Putting confidence in an unreliable person in times of trouble is like chewing with a broken tooth or walking on a lame foot. Hi, this is Zach Pruitt with Transformation Radio. As many of you have probably heard, our dear friend and an amazing servant of God, Bob Holy Cross, went home to be with the Lord this past Wednesday. The Refuge family shares in the loss and celebration of someone who truly exemplified what it means to be a responsible man of God. The arrangements are as follows. The viewing is Sunday, October 19th from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. The funeral is Monday, October 20th at 11 a.m. Both services will be held at the Grove City Church of the Nazarene, which is located at 4770 Hoover Road in Grove City, Ohio. Make sure to keep Bob's family and friends in your prayers. Have a great weekend, and God bless. The following audio is from the Refuge Church. More information about the Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.org. Last week we started a new series um, that we titled uh, Living Sacrifice. That phrase comes straight out of the text that we, uh, that we went through. So we're, we're looking, we're going through a section of Romans, Romans 12 through 15. And really, Paul, Paul says to these early Christians, he's basically saying, you know, have you heard all that I've said about faith in Jesus, right? Up to this point, chapters 1 through 11 in Romans. You've heard me unpack biblical doctrine. You've heard me unpack all of the ways that God saves us. And we go from sin to sanctified and all these things. And I've, I've explained how you come to know Jesus, how you come to know God. Now, if you believe in Jesus, 
if you come to a point where you say, I believe this, I accept this, then live like this. Then live like this. And so the, the first 11 chapters of Romans um, is really like a summary of Christian doctrine. And then 12 through 15 is the practical outworkings of Christian living. If you believe in this, then, then this is how you will live. This is how you will live. What we know is that we don't have to bring sacrifices to the altar. We don't have to shed blood. You don't have to measure your good works versus your bad works. It's, it's, it's not right to say, you know, well, Christianity is really about the good people getting in and the bad people, you know, are out. What, what Paul makes clear is that Jesus' bloody sacrifice was the end of bloody sacrifices. But if you believe in what Paul's saying, if you believe that Jesus is the way, then your whole life will become a living sacrifice. Will become a living sacrifice. Because if you come to the place where you realize in the depths of your heart, in the depths of your heart, that you are in fact a sinner. And when you realize that God, at much expense to himself, costing him his life, saved you, you realize that there's nothing that he can't ask of you. There's nothing he can't call you to. There's nothing he can't ask of you. So, so we don't put God in our debt. Our good works don't merit us any sort of favor with God. When we approach, we approach Jesus with faith, total belief, and repentance, turning from our sins, turning from our old ways. And he accepts us. And God sees us as Jesus, his perfect son. Because Jesus traded places with us. Jesus' death in this sense is our death. Why? Because sin requires punishment. Injustice requires justice. We all know this. If someone was a pedophile, you don't, you don't just turn your head and let them go free, right? People want justice for evil acts, and this is true for God. For God to be good, he has to do something about evil. And what happened is that Jesus, who'd never sinned, willingly traded places with sinful humanity or in order that when we put our faith in him, God accepts us. God accepts us. And so the big idea there is Jesus, perfect Jesus, traded places with you and I and took, on, took the full-on weight of our offenses to a holy, just, and good God. And that's why we call this the gospel. That's why we call this the good news. Because it is good news. Because we're accepted by God because of Christ. So for God to be good, he had to do something about sin. He had to. And when we understand this, it changes us, right? It changes us. So if people never quit worshiping themselves, the world's always going to be a selfish greedy, and hostile place to live. Why? Because, because of the prideful sin that's, when, that's within every one of us. And it's especially highlighted in those that are, that are in active rebellion against this God. And so this is why Paul says, if you understand what I've told you about God, you'll be living sacrifices. And then he begins to break down some of the implications of this statement. So let's, let's look to our text this morning. We're in uh, Romans 12. 3 through 8. It says this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, 
but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So there's a lot in here, but what we're going to look at is, is just three aspects of this. And so, and so first, the, bi- the big thing that we're going to say is, is, is don't think less of yourself, but think of yourself less. And we're going to unpack what that means. Secondly, we see, we see this non-negotiable commitment to the local church. And then lastly, we see that, that all of us have gifts. And Paul exhorts us to use them within the context of the local church. So first, don't think less of yourself. Think of yourself less. So what do we, what do we mean by that? Well, first of all, I kind of stole this phrase somewhere. Tim Keller used it in one of his sermons somewhere. But let's look at verse 3. He says, For the, By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And so here, Paul is reiterating this idea of being a living sacrifice. Um, But he's using more direct, he's using um, understandable language. And and in effect, what he's saying is, hey, listen, this this isn't all about you. This Christian thing isn't all about you. Christianity isn't simply about your preferences and your comfort and your personal successes. And so the phrase phrase here, sober judgment, in the Greek means to be sane, to be sensible, to think and live wisely in self-control over one's passions and one's desires. So contrary to that idea, how often do we hear Christians, right? We hear the church, we hear Christians mauling over their calling, their passion, their pipe dreams, their gifting. And so often people might not say this, but really deep down what they're, they're kind of wrestling with is, oh, I'm just waiting on God to kind of shoot me down some heavenly assignment. And it's massive. You know, that'll cure cancer or, or end disease or change the culture of the youth right? We're just waiting on God to shoot us down some inspiration so that we can do this massive thing for God. Or, or on the other side of that, you've got the folks that, you know, criticize the church and they criticize Christian culture and they describe all the right ways that things should be done and how they would do ministry and how it would be so much better. All the while, they're not doing anything, right? Why is, what is this? Why is this? Well, this is, in my opinion, this is West, but in my opinion, I think it's a blending of our American individualism. You know, I can do this on my own, my way. Rambo-style Christianity. It's blended with American individualism and this idea of calling or spiritual gifts. You know, and to be honest, I think it's often fragmented. There might be a, you know, there's a hint of truth in there. Like, oh, yeah, it sounds good, but it's, it's fragmented. It's not the whole truth. It, it's not the whole biblical message. So how so? Well, if we were honest, we've all seen power abused. We've all seen uh, influence used to manipulate people. 
And, and, and couple that with the fact that our culture tells us that we're self-made. And so if we believe that we're self-made, it's easy to respond to lesser fortunate people by saying, you know, oh, well, well, those people are poor because they're lazy and they don't want to work. Well, maybe. But see, it's naive to think that your success or my success is a byproduct of our genius. You know, I, for example, I wasn't in charge of what family I was born into, okay? I, I, I didn't get to pick my parents. I didn't get to pick my environment. I didn't get to pick my opportunities, and neither did you. Fortunately for me, I was born into a great family. I was born, in, born into a, a, a family that taught me and nurtured me and challenged me. And a lot of people don't get that. A lot of folks don't get that. But our culture teaches us that if you try hard enough, you can have whatever you want. And I think there's some truth in that, but I don't buy in that. I don't buy into that. I don't think that's the whole story. And if we believe that, if we take that at face value, I think what happens is this kind of thinking produces a bunch of little entitled narcissists. And we blend this with Christianity. We take that and we throw it into Christianity and, and we let our culture, we let our American individualism define our Christianity. And so what happens is it becomes all about my calling and my gifting, and my family, and my dreams, and my ministry. There's way too many my's in there. It, all, it becomes all about me. I serve God to put God in my debt so that God has to do things for me. And that is not biblical. And that is not Christianity. And it's crap. And Paul is saying, don't get down on yourself. You know, don't have this false humility. False humility. Don't, don't, you know, start refusing to take compliments. Don't, don't lower your self-esteem for the sake of the gospel. Oh, poor me, I'm just getting by. You know, don't settle for that garbage. That would be thinking less of yourself. No, what I'm saying is think of yourself less. That's a big difference. What are we saying? Instead of being consumed with thinking about your needs and your dreams and your desires and your hopes and your wants. Think about the people that God has placed right in front of you. Who has God placed right in front of you right now? Think about the church. Think about the whole community of believers. And thank God that Jesus didn't live like this, right? Imagine if Jesus came down and he's like, hey, everybody, by the way, I'm the son of God. Bow down and give me a Coke. You know, like, I mean, he, he didn't do that. He, Jesus served. Jesus gave of himself. Jesus sacrificed. Jesus spent much time with orphans and widows. Jesus, at much expense to himself, did mercy. He loved. He, he, he invested in the people that were right in front of him. I mean, we saw that in Mark. He'd been doing it for days. He was exhausted and he still gave of himself. He still gave of himself. And that's what being like Jesus means. That's, that's a part of what it means to be a living sacrifice. That's what it means to think of yourself less. The idea there is you're just not on your mind as much. And that's a problem for all of us right? If we were honest, even the good stuff we do most often is selfish. I'm going to help them because it makes me look good or because they'll, you know, they'll owe me. That's selfish. It's your that's sin, right? We're selfish. 
And, and really, also, if, if we believe this, if we live this way, then we're not sitting around just waiting for God to shotgun us down some inspiration. You're simply living like Jesus and serving those that are right in front of you. Because what we do is we sit around and we wait for God to give us this, I'm just waiting for, for God to tell me my calling. And all the while, there's these people all around you that are in need of the gospel. There's these people all around you that are in so much need and you just overlook them because you're so focused on your calling and your needs and your wants. And I think, I think we need to notice something else here. So second point, we, we see in this text, and this goes hand in hand with the first, is that we see this non-negotiable commitment to the local church. What in the world does that mean? And this, again, this ties beautifully with the first point. But let's look at verse four and five. He says, so Paul says, for as in one body, we have many members. And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We skip over this idea a lot. In the American church, especially. Why? Because our culture, our culture has a really heavy-handed emphasis on, on the individual instead of community, instead of the group. It's just our culture. It's how we, you know, there's some good in that, but like, like anything else, we make, it an, we make it an ultimate thing and it becomes negative. So this idea of one anothering, this idea of community, it's often not even considered. It's often not even considered. So for example, uh, people, I mean, something that people get hung up probably more in the past year than anything else I've noticed is people are often like, what in the world is church membership? Like, I don't, I, don't, I don't see the words church membership in the Bible, and they'll just go on and on. And, and, and I get it. I lovingly just listen. But I've got, this on the, I've, I've got this on the screen. But really, church membership is language we use that embodies the idea of a radical commitment to one another as a local church. Church membership is language we use that embodies the idea of a radical commitment to one another as a local church. And listen, what we have to understand is the New Testament assumes this kind of relationship, this kind of commitment. Paul would, you know, Paul in his writings, when you just, when you really dissect and read all of his writings, Paul would be like, duh, of course you're supposed to be responsible for one another. Of course you're supposed to be generous with one another. Of course you're to correct one another. Of course you're, you're to train one another. There's no biblical precedent for solo Christianity or Lone Ranger Christianity or, or Rambo-style Christianity where you take on, you know, you, you do this thing for Jesus. There's no precedent for that. And, I, you know, I've read, I've read the articles and their books that have been written, and, and there's a lot of stuff coming out here recently, especially with this idea that, you know, I'm a Christian and I don't go to church. Or, um, or, you know, I'm a Christian and I'm not involved in a local body of faith. And I, along with 2,000 years of church historians, would say that that's explicitly unbiblical. It's not like a maybe, a gray. It's like the New Testament doesn't even have a category for that. And so the question is, can I be a Christian and not be committed to a local church? And in essence... In essence, listen, that's like asking how abnormal of a Christian can I be and get away with it? How abnormal of a Christian can I be and get away with it? Because again, there isn't a category for that. 
And it doesn't fit at all with, with all the teaching about community and accountability and discipline and the responsibility of church leaders and serving and deacons and on and on and on and on. So the answer I would give is if, I, I understand that some of this is case if somebody has an extreme situation with their health or whatever, but I would say if you're deliberately not committed to a local church, you're being actively rebellious against what the Bible teaches. So this is just one example among many. Again, again, the text says, 4 and 5, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Let that sink in. That's not me. I didn't write that. And the reason I'm harping on this isn't because I like to or it makes me feel good. The room got really quiet, but because I feel like I need to. I feel like I need to because given the fact that our individualistic culture, it airs badly in this area. We air badly in this area. So you see and you hear it all the time. Um, we, we, we often talk about the church like we talk about the mall. I go to that one for this and this one for that and... And so a sample dialogue might be this. You know, hey, bro, where do you go to church? Well, I don't. You know, the last one I went to just didn't do it for me. Or, uh, or I don't like the music. Or, uh, you know, one of the ushers gave me a weird look, so mm, can't do that. Or, yeah, I go here and, you know, I go here and there. I go there for the, and I go to that church for the music, and I go to that church for the teaching, and I go to that church for the kids' ministry, and I hope, I hope this logically just starts to make sense because in this kind of thinking, if that's, if that's us, if that's you, that leaves no room for accountability. That leaves no room for community or commitment. You're just a consumer. The church is like a mall, you know? They make better t-shirts, so I'm going to go over there. This is on sale, so check this one out, right? That's what we do. And I'll say this. This, this should be dub. but we, we get so offended so easily. And I just want to say, there's no perfect group of people. There's no perfect group of people. Where there are people, there is sin, okay? And so with any church, you're going to find sinners. You're going to find hypocrites. You know, people are like, oh, the church is a bunch of hypocrites. I'm like, so are you. You should feel like family when you go. <laughs> and this whole idea of commitment is right here in this passage. I mean, let this sink in. Verse 5 says, So we, though many, are one body in Christ. And this is the big one. And individually, members of one another. Do you see it? Paul is saying, you're members of one another. You're responsible for one another. You're family with one another. There's no room for isolated Christianity. And how I pray that, that the American church begins to see this and repent of this and change this. We're called to commit to a local church, to serve it, to give to it, and be held accountable by it. This might sound radical to you, but that's, listen, you got to understand, that's because we live in America. It's what the New Testament teaches. So when someone asks us, where do you go to church? Well, our response should be something in the sense of, you know, brother or sister, whatever, whatever language. Bro, we are the church. But I gather with this group of believers over here. 
or over here or whatever. Because see, the church isn't a building or a program or a place to be spiritually entertained and served. The local church is a gathering of radically committed believers of Jesus Christ, who though many are one body in Christ. And listen, I know what some of you are thinking. This isn't an infomercial <laughs> to become a member of, of Refuge Church. Many of you already are. And, and, and if you aren't, listen, pursue biblical membership somewhere, okay? Pursue membership somewhere. Become a member of a church that preaches the whole counsel of the Bible, that worships Jesus alone, that rightly performs the sacraments of communion and baptism, and that takes Christian community seriously. Become a member of a church like that. And if it's not here, praise God. Just become one somewhere. Commit to people. Commit to other believers. Become more like Jesus. And invest your resources in that church. One more quick example, and then we'll move to the last point. If you're not committed to a local church, okay? And committed is the key word there. Word there. What will happen is this. When hard times come, because they will, they will come. Um, when temptation comes, because it will, when you're wrestling with the practical outworkings of what it means to live like Christ in some real, real life scenario at work, what do you do? What do you do? The New Testament church gives us a clear picture of early Christians bearing one another's burdens, calling each other out on their sins in loving and redemptive ways, serving members in need, meeting together in homes, eating together, praying together, doing life together. That's, what the, that's the New Testament church. And so if you're engaged in that, if, if you're in that, and you have to pursue it, you're not just waiting on somebody to call you your name, and you, know, you have to pursue that, and when you're engaged in that, you're not going to be able to stay in sin. Why? Because you're going to have brothers and sisters in Christ that love you enough to ask you tough questions, to encourage you when you need encouraged, and to talk you through difficult situations. And it's going to be messy, it's not going to be perfect, but you're not going to be able to stay in sin. So without a radical level of commitment, there's no real hope for biblical gospel transformation. There's no hope for gospel-centered community. There's no real, there will be no manifestation of the New Testament church without that kind of commitment. So this is why we need the radical commitment. We need to be radically committed to a local church. And this is a non-negotiable in the New Testament. Last point. Thirdly, we all have gifts. So 6, six through 8 talks about how we all have gifts and we must use them in the context of a local church. So let's read 6 through 8 again. Having gifts that differ according to the grace that's given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service and our serving, <clears throat> the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So Paul says, by God's grace, those of you, you know, those of you that put your faith in Jesus Christ and are saved, that God has enabled each and every one of you with specific gifts that are to be used for God's glory and for the edification of the church. You know, not for selfish gain. And so prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, generous contribution, leading, mercy. Paul gives seven examples of gifts here. Um, the, that God gives to his saved people for the use of the betterment of the body of Christ, the church. 
Hopefully we see that. So begin to ask yourself, how has God uniquely wired me? How has God uniquely gifted me? What passions and desires has God put in my heart that I can utilize for the glory of God and for the building up of the local church? And so this infers, this infers that it's not the pastor's or the teacher's jobs to do all the ministry within the local church. This is a common misunderstanding, especially in the professionalization of, of church pastors and staff. So, so my pr- primary job is to go before God in prayer, to study God's word, to wrestle through opportunities and challenges with the elders, to cast vision along with training and equipping um, you know, people for the work and ministry, according to Ephesians 4. So my calling is to feed the church, to teach the Bible, to protect the church by confronting false teaching and those that might try to manipulate or corrupt members. My role is to disciple leaders and to pray for the church. Biblically, those are the primary. I mean, there's other stuff, but those are the primary roles for for pastor elders. And so the Bible uses this metaphor of a body to say that the church is like a body. Each person is a different part of the body meaning that we need everyone to utilize their God-given gifts in order for our body to function in health and efficiency. So again, what are your gifts? What are your gifts? What are your passions? What can you do to bring glory to God and to build up the local church? Use your gifts. For some, it's serving. You know, you're just a, you're just a server. You love to serve. For, for some, it's prayer and encouragement. For some, it's leadership and mobilizing different teams and strategies. For some, it's administration. For some, it's mercy. You feel called to help those who can't help themselves. The orphans and the widows, like we see in Acts 6. How has God uniquely wired you and uniquely placed you to bring glory to his name and to edify and build up the church? And some of us, what we need to do is we need to repent because we need to turn, we need to confess. We, we've, been, we've sinned in this area because, because we haven't been, we've been an act of rebellion against God in this area because we haven't been committed to a local church. And we've been doing so um, on purpose. Some of us need to pray and ask God to forgive, you know, ask him for forgiveness for just not loving his church. And again, there will never be a perfect church. And there will never be perfect people. And so it's our responsibility to do the best we can to love and serve and lead the local church to look as much like Jesus as possible. And that means we're going to have to do a lot of confessing and repenting. It means I have to do a lot of confessing and repenting. But the message Paul is giving here is in radical opposition to solo Christianity. This is in radical opposition to autonomous living. We're being called into the uncomfortability of living with our masks off, if you will. We're we're called into the uncomfortability of being honest. We're called into the uncomfortability of becoming vulnerable. We're called into the uncomfortability of giving ourselves for the cause of Christ. And you know, what happens is when we start to think this way, there's those thoughts that come in our head. What if they use, what if they use my honesty against me? What if, what if they talk bad about me? What if they might, you know, they might become jealous of me or they might try to hurt me? And friends, in closing, we have to remember who's gone before us. 
Jesus is the prototype example of someone who became vulnerable to the point that it cost him his life. Jesus became vulnerable to the point that people accused him of being a drunk and a glutton, someone who hung out with prostitutes. Jesus became vulnerable to the point that he was betrayed by his closest friends. Jesus became vulnerable to the point that falsely accused, he was beaten, mocked, and was ultimately nailed to a cross. And he did this for the very people who deserted him. The very same people who'd beat him. The very government that condemned him. And, and what we have to, and where it becomes personal is you have to realize that he did this for you. That he did this for you. That right now in this room, condemned you sit. A sinner and a hypocrite. And the cross of Jesus is still enough for you. Jesus' suffering was the ultimate suffering so that in our little sufferings, our little trials, our little, our little you know, things that, that really take us off course, he, he, he did the ultimate suffering so that we could be with him, so that we could know him, so that in our little sufferings, we become more like him. And, and, and make it even more personal. We have to realize that you're not, you know, I'm not a nobody. You're not a nobody. The Bible teaches that you're an image bearer of God eternal and at much expense to himself. He suffered to have relationship with you. And this relationship trumps all other relationships. This relationship with the triune God is the relationship we're all made for. This is the relationship that we all crave for. And because of Jesus Christ, it's made available to each of us. So put your hope in Jesus today. Put your faith in Jesus. Don't, don't think less of yourself, but because you don't have to prove yourself to anybody, because God welcomes you in, because of what he did on the cross, because God accepts you in Christ, you can think of yourself less. Commit to a local church. Engage in using your gifts to serve a local church. Be a living sacrifice. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you reveal yourself in your word. That you're so gracious to us. Man, I love Ephesians 6, that even when we were sinners, you died for us all that we would know the grace that you had on the cross. We don't even have a category for this, but that you could look out and you could say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Help us to have that kind of forgiveness. God, grow that kind of grace in us. And I pray that we'd all be compelled to be followers of you because no one else lives like that. No one else could respond like that. We've seen people respond in vengeance and, 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 and anger and rage and, and I'm going to get them back because they hurt me and you did the exact opposite. And there's those of us in this room that are just in active rebellion against you and you're beckoning us towards yourself. Just like you did on the cross. 
You're the ultimate example of vulnerability. You're the ultimate example of honesty. You're the ultimate example of a deep, deep, loving commitment. And I just pray that, God, we would this morning repent of this sin. We'd repent of our shortcomings. We repent of just our rebellion against wanting to just be autonomous and wanting to do our own thing and, and, you know, taking bits and pieces of the Bible and trying to apply it and in turn being our own little God. I pray that we would surrender to you this morning. We praise you. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from the Refuge Church in Grove City, Ohio. For more information about the Refuge Church, please visit therefugechurch.org.